Good evening, and welcome to the Inic Pratt Free Library for a very, very, very special evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Inic Pratt Free Library. And through the years, we've had numerous award-winning and best-selling authors who have participated in our Writers Live and our Brown Lecture Series. But tonight, we are so proud to host not only a very gifted writer, but the man behind the Brown Lecture Series, Mr. Eddie Brown. We also want to say a special welcome and hello to the people who are in the Wheeler Auditorium. We have an overflow crowd, so thank you for being here as well. And tonight is the book launch of Mr. Brown's autobiography, Beating the Odds, Eddie Brown's Investing and Life Strategies. Now, you know he could have had this book launch anywhere in the city of Baltimore but we are honored that he chose to have it here at the Pratt Library to start his six-city book tour right here with us. Now, I mentioned best-selling authors, but we already have had instances of this book flying out of the door because Eddie and Sylvia have donated already 657 books to the Nifty Baltimore program to all the 8th graders and the 12th graders and, very importantly, their teachers. Then they donated 55 books to the 8th graders and teachers at the Crossroads School where their TCAP program is based, and that's Turning the Corner Achievement Program. And then, and this was a special one, 100 books to the graduating seniors at the Apaka, and he'll say it, Apaka High School in Florida, where he was born. And if I may just take this opportunity to say that Eddie and his beautiful wife, Sylvia, as you know, have made important philanthropic contributions to our city. And their impact can be felt everywhere. And the Pratt Library was very fortunate to have benefited from their generosity through their foundation, the Eddie C. and Sylvia Brown Family Foundation. And several years ago, and this was an important time in the Pratt Library's history, the Browns donated a million dollars to the Pratt And it was given to enhance the African-American collection, which is now the largest in the state of Maryland, and to establish the award-winning now lecture series. But what you might not know, that that gift at that time was the largest donation by an individual to the library since 1882 from when Mr. Pratt gave his original million dollars.
And as you know, the Browns are very down-to-earth and a noble couple. And when they gave the gift, they originally asked that they remain anonymous. They didn't want people to know. However, with some persuasion, and Mr. Cecil Flamer was very involved in that persuasion because he was the board chair at the time. And he said, please, let us reveal that you have given this gift at this time because it would inspire so many others to contribute to the library. It would also inspire so many people to come to the library and use the resources to be like the Browns themselves. So we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. Now, I had some more family affairs things and uh, connections that uh, we could talk about in terms of the brands, but I think we should get right to it to have a very special young man to introduce our moderator and facilitator tonight. He is Eddie and Sylvia's grandson. He's an eighth grader at the Gilman School, and please welcome Mr. Elias Ramos. Good evening, and welcome to the launch of the book tour for Beating the Odds, Eddie Brown's Investing in Life Strategies. I'm going to reiterate a little bit here. This is a six-city book tour beginning here in the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, Maryland. Also here this evening is my grandfather's co-author, Blair Walker, along with his wife, Felicia, and his mother, Dolores Pierre. The author of eight books, including three novels set in Baltimore... Blair is a Charm City native who's written for the News American, The Sun, and Baltimore Magazine. Would you all please stand so the audience can acknowledge your accomplishment? That was intended for the walkers. Good to show some support, though. But... The format for tonight's program is that our friend, Dr. Freeman Rabowski III, will interview my grandfather and ask him some probing questions about his upbringing, his family, and his profession. Even if you haven't yet had the opportunity to read the book, I can assure you that Dr. Hrabowski's tantalizing questions will make you want to read it, will make you want to read it and learn about some, some of the engaging stories that my grandfather tells. My first opportunity to meet Dr. Rabowski was indeed with my grandfather. After an early morning meeting that I had gone to with him, we were headed outside to our car to come back when we ran into Dr. Hrabowski. And instantly, I knew that this man was important. <laughs> my grandfather was extremely eager to introduce me to him, and this is my first, my first encounter with the esteemed Dr. Freeman Hrabowski. Dr. Hrabowski, who was born in 1950 in the city of Birmingham, Alabama, was very active in the civil rights movement. He was even featured in the Spike Lee documentary, Four Little Girls, which told the, the tale of the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, which had racist motives behind its execution. At only 19 years old, he graduated from Hamp Hampton Institute, with highest honors in mathematics, no less. He received his master's degree in mathematics at the University of Illinois, and at the age of 24, he earned his PhD in higher administration and, and statistics. In 1992, he became the president of UMBC and has retained that position since. In 2008, he was named among America's best leaders by the U.S. News and World Report, which ranked UMBC the number one up-and-coming university in the nation in both 2009 and 2010. 
Time magazine has named him one of America's 10 best college presidents. The highest award which can be given to America College and University Presidents, the TIAA CREF Theodore M. Hesburgh Award for Leadership Excellence, was given to him in 2011. Now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Freeman Rabowski. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if somebody can just tell me how to turn this, is this on? Can you hear me? Great. Good evening. How many of you have read the book? Oh, good, good, good. We're going to have a great discussion tonight. This is, uh, first of all, give Elias a hand for doing a great job. Those of you who have not read it are in for a treat. It is an amazing story, one that was so interesting to me that I actually read it twice. And uh, I finished it again last night and called Eddie and, and began to talk about some of the things I'd ask about. So let me begin with a question about his birth. What you will see throughout the book is that Eddie is amazingly honest in telling you not only what happened, but what he thought about what happened in different ways at different times. He begins by talking about his birth to his mother, who was 13 when he was born. And he makes a statement that almost sounds counterintuitive, because what he says was that, in fact, he was rescued by the big three. And he goes on to say, some might think this is awful and terrible that I'm in this situation, but I felt immensely blessed. Eddie, let me ask you to talk about what you mean by the big three, and secondly, most important, how you came to understand just how blessed you are. And for those of you who are from, not from the Deep South, you may not know this tradition, but in the Deep South, I call Baltimore the Upper South. <laughs> he and I are from the Deep South. That's why Carla couldn't announce, pronounce Apopka, Florida, right? Because she's a northerner, all right? But, but in the Deep South, Eddie is still known as Eddie Call. His middle name is Call, all right? Eddie Call. You know, you get that first and last and middle name. So, Eddie Call, talk to us about. <laughs> Tell us about your thinking about being blessed from the beginning of your life. Well, as Freeman mentioned, I do feel blessed because after my mother had me at 13, she realized that she couldn't really care for me. So she actually left home when she was 15 and headed north uh, on her own. And it was my, the big three would be my grandmother, Mamie Magdalene Brown, my grandfather, Jake Brown Sr., and my uncle, Jake Brown Jr. So those three was really the focal point of rearing me. Um, my grandmother basically set the tone. When I was very, very young, she would take me over to Orlando, the big city. Today, I say Orlando is a suburb of Apopka. <laughs> but Orlando was the big city, and at a very early age, it made a huge impression on me because she would walk around the city and she would show me men 
uh, happen to be all white men, sitting behind desks with white shirts and ties. They were common laborers. My grandmother worked in a plant nursery. In fact, those of you that get indoor plants, philodendron and other indoor green plants, they probably come from Apopka, Florida. Because when you drive into this little town, there's a sign that says, Welcome to Apopka, the foliage capital of the world. And literally, they have tons of these plant-growing nurseries. And my grandfather worked in the citrus groves, basically hoeing around citrus trees, orange trees, grapefruit trees, in overalls. So they were common laborers. And what my grandmother said to me is, if you stay in school, if you get a good education, you too can sit behind a desk with a white shirt and tie, and you don't have to be out in the fields like we are. So that was a huge, huge impression. And I'll talk about my uncle, because he impressed me in a completely different way uh, at a later point. Okay, all right. It is, it is interesting that you also had a wonderful grandfather who clearly respected his wife. That's correct. And when I think about how much you adore our own Sylvia. Where's Sylvia? Would you all give Sylvia a hand, please? Our own Sylvia. Brown. And, and the great example you have set, set as a husband, as a father, for not only your daughters, but also for your grandsons. Uh, I would think that your grandfather had something to do with your seeing just how a man should treat a woman. That's correct. We had a very warm and loving home. And it was just a great environment, and it set a good tone for my future treating women. Which is a very positive statement, because when you get into the book, what you see is that he still hasn't talked about the third person in that big three. You had, the, you had Mamie Magdalene, you had Jake Sr., then you had the phenomenal Jake Jr. Yes. And, and Uncle Jake was actually, as I recall, was a little older. I mean, J Uncle Jake was, interestingly enough, a, 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 an entrepreneur, for sure, to say yeah. the least. That's correct. Right? And we would say <laughs> Uncle Jake was fairly complicated. Would you agree with that? That is true. Yes. And <laughs> I think you might say that you might want your grandsons to be as entrepreneurial as Uncle Jake, but you wouldn't want them taking too much more from Uncle Jake. Is that also right? That is correct. I just wanted to make sure Elias heard this. Because am I correct that before you were Elias's age, you were actually driving around in the car selling moonshine liquor? Is that right? That is correct. All right. <laughs> Elias, we do not want you doing that, all right? So I'm going to ask you to talk about the influence of Uncle Jake, the entrepreneurial spirit, but the fact that on the one hand, you were making A's in school, but on the other hand, you were speeding around in a car, helping to sell liquor, entrepreneurially, right? right that's correct. Uh, but certainly doing things that we wouldn't want children doing today. Talk about that split childhood personality. Yeah, it was a split personality, and... We have three grandsons. You met Elias. We also have Daryl Jr., who's 10. 
in the front row, and we have Benjamin, who is four. So I can't imagine, when I was two years older than Benjamin, I was actually driving a truck. Uh, It's hard to imagine. But my uncle initially was in a very legitimate business, and I think that he had the skills and the just knowledge to be a CEO of a major corporation. He didn't have the education, but he had just so much on the ball. And what he did was he would go to Alabama and Georgia, and he would basically bring migrant workers from those places into central Florida. And at that time, central Florida, the whole area was the citrus-growing capital of Florida. And he had several big trucks. And he would get contracts with the major citrus growers. He didn't own the groves, but he had contracts with the major citrus growers in the region, and he would basically provide the labor to harvest the crops, the fruit, uh, during the season. So it was a seasonal business. But he would, uh, when I was six, he put me behind the wheel of one of these big trucks, and at that time, there, were th- there was a throttle on the dash because my feet couldn't reach the floor. And he would point me in the direction, just head down this row, when you get near the end, throttle it back a little bit, make a big turn, and come down the next row. And I would do this for hours, you know, (laughs) down one row, throttling it up a little bit, and there were these uh, laborers, after the fruit had been harvested, it would be sitting in boxes on the side of the rows, and they would be dumping these boxes into the back of this big truck. So that was when I was six. Uh, Now, by the time I got to be around 11, he bought me my own 1936 pickup Ford truck. Now, by this time, I was an accomplished driver. Uh, And the other thing about Uncle Jake is by that time, he had moved into a different entrepreneurial role, uh, into the moonshine business. And he was, in the end, the largest moonshine distributor in the state of Florida. (laughs) Very entrepreneurial. I don't know whether we should applaud or just shake our heads, baby. (laughs) Now, the neat thing about this is he said he had like 12 cars. They were all souped up. He was very good mechanically. He could pull down engines. He could put in new engines. He could bore out the cams and put in oversized pistons. And he did all of this stuff. He had both the brains and the mechanical skills. And he souped up these cars all 12 of them, and they would run 140 miles per hour, uh, which there was a purpose. He wanted to be faster than any police car. 
That was his goal. And so every Sunday when I was around 11 uh, with my 36 Ford pickup truck, he would give me one of the cars. These cars never stayed on his property. Uh, One would. The others would be hidden away in various places because he never wanted the police to know which car, you know, was his car. So he would just kind of, you know, move around, trade them off, drive different cars. But every Sunday, he would give me one of the souped-up cars to just drive around. He would give me a $1,000 bill. Uh, He said, this is not to be spent. This is just show money. You know, if you're walking around and there's a pretty girl, you know, you could pull out your $1,000 bill. <clears throat> Just for show. Not to be spent. I want it back. So I would have this souped-up car, and my job, only requirement is I had to wash it and I had to wax it uh, each Sunday, and then I could have it for the day. And then I had to give him his $1,000 bill back and the car back uh, on Sunday evening. So this went on for years. You know, it's interesting. You you can tell. And at the same time, remember, uh, Eddie Call was earning A's in school. And so there are two questions that come to mind. The first is you had this example of somebody making money, working hard, but not doing it legally on the one hand. You saw yourself doing well in school on the other, and you saw your grandparents working very hard. How did you make the decision that you wanted to follow the path of education and of being what we would call a highly respected man of faith, a husband, a father, a citizen of this community? How did you make, and had you decided at that age to do that, or will that come later? Actually, that will come later. But, you know, one thing that was a huge advantage, and there were some benefits of segregation, you know, because the teachers were all black. The teachers took a great interest in the students. The teachers gave me so much self-confidence, and they just kept boosting my spirits And they would say, you are very smart. And that kept giving me more self-confidence. And they would put me ahead of grade. Freeman, you graduated at 15 from high school. I was 15 when I entered 12th grade, Mm -hmm. but my birthday is in November, so I was 16 when I graduated. Uh (laughs) So I was a little bit slower. (laughs) <laughs> we got to come back to education because it played such an important part in your life. But, but here is the question. What advice would you have for people, young people or others, interested in being involved in entrepreneurial activities? What were the lessons you took away from that period? And also, if you would, mention some of the other entrepreneurial activities you were involved in on your own during that period as a child. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's start with that. Because... As time moved along, and I had this 36 Ford pickup, uh, I began to basically hire other young kids in the community and develop a business. I had a route for delivering wood 
because in central Florida, in fact, it's still that way, it gets pretty cool in the winter, and many of the people, especially in the impoverished area where we lived, had wood-burning stoves, and we would go to sawmills, and we could pick up the remnants of these, what they call slabs, the outer area of the trees that they cut for producing lumber free. So I had zero cost of goods sold. <laughs> and we would pick up these, and I would give the kids maybe, you know, a quarter, uh, and I would make, you know, a couple of dollars. <laughs> so I had a nice profit margin. <laughs> and I said, business is great, you know. <laughs> Cheap labor and plenty of profits. But that was kind of one business. The other business was uh, pulling moss because Spanish moss grew, you know, free on trees. And we would go into the woods and we had these long poles with hooks and we would pull moss and load it on my pickup truck. And there was an outlet where you could sell this moss. And then the third job or business I had was the lady that my grandfather worked for, um, she basically hired me to water all of the nice flowers in the yard. It was a different area of town that, than we lived in. And she would pay me a dollar and a half a week to do this, and I had to come three times after school to water the flowers. And I hired this young man um, in the book, his name is Monkey, uh, to basically do this work for me. So I would take him to the job, and I would give him 50 cents a week and he would do the work. So I had three great businesses earning great profit margins. But then along the way... Excuse me, and that's exactly why this library got a million dollars. You see what <laughs> I'll mention one other one that really turned out to be quite a moneymaker. The nursery, plant nursery, that my grandmother worked in... Um, I don't know how this idea came about, but they said, you know, we will give your grandson cuttings of any of the type plants that we grow if he wants to grow them, and then we will buy the grown, the uh, mature plants back from him. And I think the way it came about is I was in the 4-H, the folks up north don't know too much about the uh, 4-H. And uh, we had a project. I forget which grade I was in, but we had a project. So I decided I'm going to choose a, a project that could possibly make me some money. So my uncle built this uh, nursery, really, on his property. He had a few acres. And we actually, I hired, again, some of my friends <laughs> to help plant these cuttings and I had a very nice size nursery, and then after the plants matured, I would sell them to the large plant grower to be shipped to Baltimore and <laughs> other, other places north. So I had several uh, businesses. So this idea of entrepreneurship was planted, the seed was planted very early, and I really credit my uncle because I can't ever remember my uncle having really worked for anyone else. He always did his own thing and did very well at it. And so what are the lessons for people 
thinking about some entrepreneurial activity or wanting to start a business? What did you learn that would be helpful to other people, young people and others? Well, let's take a case in point, and that is starting Brown Capital Management, which I started as my wife and two daughters like to say, with uh, zero assets under management, uh, zero income, and, you know, built it from scratch. But I had this idea that there are some key factors in starting a business. First of all, you have to have the experience in whatever it is you're going to do to be credible. So fortunately, by the time I started Brown Capital in 1983, so we'll be celebrating our 29th year in business in July. We currently have uh, 28 employees and manage uh, about $4 billion of uh, assets. So what I figured I needed, and this gets to, will answer your question, is first of all, experience. So by the time I started Brown Capital, I had 13 years of experience in the investment business, uh, five years working as an engineer for IBM, electrical engineer, but 13 years of solid experience in the investment business. I was the first African-American investment, well, really professional of any kind, hired by T. Rowe Price Associates in 1973. And I give T. Rowe Price credit publicly as much as I can because they took a big risk. There was nothing to say that they should hire an African-American as a portfolio manager. And the only thing I see is they saw talent. They realized that money is green. And if someone can do a good job to make money for their clients and for them, then, you know, color is not that important. So they took um, the big risk, I call it a big risk, of hiring me because they did not have any black clients. I'm sorry, they had one. Henry Parks, for those of you that are from Baltimore, uh, he was the only black client that T. Rowe Price had. So there was no, infirm- no affirmative action programs at that time, you know, nothing to say they should do this, but they did it. So I had 10 years at T. Rowe, three years at, of really managing the assets of the wealthiest family in the state of Indiana at the time. So I had 13 years of solid experience. So the other thing you need is capital to be an entrepreneur. And I wanted to be in a position of not having to borrow any money, take on any debt. So being in the investment world for then 13 years, hopefully I've been a pretty good steward and manager of our own personal assets and had a pretty decent portfolio. So we had enough money And we had our daughter's college education pre-funded way before I did this. So I had the education, their education pre-funded. I had enough resources, money, to last for three to five years before, without taking a salary, to give the business a chance. So I think those are the critical ingredients. Experience, enough capital, without taking on a lot of debt, and 
you have to be a risk taker. And I have always been a risk taker, but I said I only take calculated risk. I don't take, you know, just risk for risk's sake. And when I looked at, I always look at what's the downside? What is the worst case? The worst case, and a lot of our friends, many of them might be in this room, probably are in this room, thought I was absolutely insane to leave a very well-paying job at T. Rowe Price, where I'd been for 10 years, a vice president, uh, you know, basically the ideal world, to go out and have nothing, basically, you know, but a dream. But I saw it as very little risk. The worst case, I spend a good portion of our accumulated money at that time, Sylvia probably wouldn't like that, but I said, well, you know, I can make it again. And it fails. So I've, you know, college education is all taken care of. I've kind of squeezed down our kitty, but I figured I could always get a job. I had enough confidence, again, built from a very early age in my abilities and myself that I can always get a job. The other critical thing was age. And I'd reached that critical point that if I'm going to do it, I'd better do it. Because when you're into your late 50s, you know, it's hard to get a job for someone to hire you. So I think I was 41 or 42, and I had all of the other things that I mentioned in place, and I said, I'm going to give it a try. And I left. I left on good terms. So I still have very good relations with T. Rowe, very good friends. In fact, T. Rowe re- referred business to me because my minimum was much lower than theirs. And the reason I think uh, that is, is because I didn't try to steal any of their clients. Uh, not one. So I left on good terms and basically did it the old-fashioned way, built it block by block, block, block you know, on a solid foundation um, up. So I think that's the key, being willing to take risks. What I found in my 28 years in business is there are some people who think they're entrepreneurial, willing to take risks, but in the end find that they really aren't, you know, and so... Never get beyond our childhood experiences, and anybody in the room would have to be intrigued by your mother, given that she was a baby. She was a child herself when you were born, and you said she had the, she had in many ways the courage to go to find her way at age 15. And I, I want to applaud you for having the security of self to talk honestly about your mother. It turns out that when that tragic day came and your grandmother died and your, your life began to follow a certain path, and, and your mother was called back to Apopka, she took you back to Allentown. I'd like you to talk about her interaction with the school. You were going from your all-black high school in Edenville. There was no school for children of color in his city. He had to go over to Edenville, close to Apopka. Uh, and then he was going to Allentown, where it was an integrated school, and I think he was, it would be one of seven blacks. And the first thing they were going to do is what was typically the practice, which was to put you back a grade and not to put you in the academic prep program, but put, to put you in that vocational industrial program. Your mother 
had something to say about that. Talk about your mother's approach to the school and with you. What grade were you in also when you started? Yes, when I went to Allentown, I was in the 11th grade, beginning the 11th grade, just finished the 10th. And what caused that move was when my grandmother passed unexpectedly. She had a heart attack. In fact, we were en route. She had never been north. And my uncle, myself, and his mother, my grandmother, were en route to Allentown, Pennsylvania to visit with my mother, which would have been my grandmother's first time north. And on the way, uh, we got as far as South Carolina, and she had, uh, we didn't know what was going on, but she got very ill and had a heart attack and died. And, you know, the sad part is we had a hard time finding a black hospital. Um, And I don't know if things would have been any different, but we finally found a black neighborhood in, I forget the name of the town, and we told the people, we, you know, we have an emergency, and they led us to the closest black hospital uh, in that town. And they did treat my grandmother, but she didn't make it. And that was just, uh, that took the air out of my sails. I mean, I was just crushed. It took a long time to get over that. And that long drive back to Apopka with my uncle uh, was, you know, it seemed like forever because we shipped her body back by train. And things began to develop. I was still, you know, doing business with my uncle, even in a greater way, because my grandfather was not as attentive in terms of my being in the house at a certain time. So I could just go out and stay out all night, and he wouldn't even realize it. And I was just spending more and more time with my uncle. And, you know, if you look at your life you can find certain forks in the road. And if I'd taken that fork, things would have been dramatically different than having taken this fork. And that was a critical fork in the road because my second cousin called my mother, who was then 26, an adult living in Allentown, and said, come and get this boy. He is running wild, and I'm afraid that he is going to not turn out very well. So she came. She swooped me up. I didn't want to go, but I had no choice, and she took me to Allentown to, uh, to live with her. The interesting thing, by being a very good student, the principal of uh, the school in Eatonville, Eatonville has two historical Uh, points of significance. It's the first all-black town in America, incorporated black town in America. And the second one is it was uh, where Zora Neale Hurston uh, spent most of her adult life. So in Eatonville today, there's the Zora Neale Hurston Museum. So it was a special little town, and this high school, Hungerford High School, was where we had to be bused because Phyllis Sweetly only went through eighth grade in Apopka, and Apopka High School was all white, so we couldn't go to high school in Apopka. We had to be bused about a half hour, 45 minutes to, uh, to Eatonville to go to high school. So it was in about the 10th grade, I met just an amazing English teacher, 
and she said, uh, Eddie, Carl, uh, you are very smart, and you must go to college. Well, I said, you know, I plan to go to college because my grandmother told me when I was, you know, very young that if I want to wear a white shirt and tie, you know, I was going to have to go to college and get a good education. And, but she said, I want you to go to Howard University. And I said, okay. So when um, this incident happened with my mother coming, swooping me up, the principal of Hungerford High School said, we will take him. My wife and I will take Eddie Carl because we'd like for him to stay and finish high school here. But my mother um, was insistent on taking me back with her. So I thought that was a very gracious move uh, by the principal of the high school being willing to take me and have me finish my education and I guess kind of keep me out of the bad influence. I thought it was a great influence uh, of, my, of, my, of my uncle. So when we got to Allentown, as you said, Freeman, the practice was exactly what you said. You're from the South, regardless of how good of a student you are, you're automatically put back a grade, and you're kind of almost forced into an industrial, a vocational ed track. My mother only had a ninth grade education, yeah, my mother only had a ninth grade education, but she had enough smarts to realize if I'm going into voc ed, you know, how am I going to get to college? So she fought the system tooth and nail to say, my son has to get into college prep because he's going to college. And he has all A's. You know, look at his report card. From very young age, he was put ahead of grade. In fact, he was offered to be put ahead another grade, but because of the age, they decided, and I could have beat you, uh, <laughs> they decided not to do that, uh, to just kind of settle down and let things progress. And so why would you put him back a grade? So she fought with the system, and fortunately, I was put into college prep, and I was kept on grade in the 11th grade at Allentown High School. It's an amazing story, and, and somehow you were able to go to college, having come from Apopka, uh, at a time when most children of any race would have no clue about what, a, what an outhouse is. But the book, it, it, and I say it because it is so, such a glaring point that a child who, into, who spent his entire first 15 years dealing with an outhouse got to Allentown, and they had running water, Things were different. You were in an integrated situation, and yet you were able to do well. Did you find the education very different there in Allentown, by the way? No, in fact, I found it very easy. And, you know, I was always a good student. But, you know, the outhouse thing, it... <laughs> I have a problem with porta potties to this day. He, I mean, he is squirming throughout the book. Every time he brings up that outhouse, he is not a happy guy. He is, he is not a happy guy. We're... No, because, you know, for my whole growing up period, we didn't have any running water. We didn't have electricity. You know, had to study by kerosene lamps. And I, I could deal with that. 
and naturally no hot water because we didn't have any running water. We had to heat water, you know, on the stove, bathe in a tin tub. I could deal with all of that, but the outhouse, I mean, <laughs> that was a problem. So much so that when Sylvia and I went to the inauguration of President Barack Obama, <laughs> and we were told that there wouldn't be any restroom facilities, you know, because of the crowds and so forth, there would be probably, you know, 500 or 1,000 porta parties. I said, I'm going to have to figure out something different because I do not want to use a porta potty. <laughs> so I came up with this scheme. The night before, we went to a friend's home closer to Washington in Maryland to stay overnight so we could get an early start. I said, okay, if I don't drink any liquids, <laughs> if I don't have any caffeine throughout, and actually, I bought, what do you call those things for incontinence? Uh, so I was My determined. My students would say, TMI, too much information. <laughs> We get the point. <laughs> I was determined that I was not going to use the porta potty. Eddie Carl is a man of great determination and <laughs> of great determination. The, let's talk about philanthropy. The, let's talk about. We're moving ahead very quickly because I want to get the questions from other people. Let's talk about philanthropy and someone you call Lady B, B for benefactor, and how you were able to go to college, given the costs. Tell us the story of Lady B. Lady B, she was referred to as Lady B in the book because I don't know her name. I never met her. But it would be called a community organizer, a black gentleman. And the blacks lived in a certain section in Allentown. So kind of the community uh, activist or leader for the black community in Allentown came to me when I was a senior in high school and he said uh, this particular uh, white lady has approached me and she said she would like to send a deserving African American to college and pay all of the college expenses and I'm going to recommend you because as Freeman said there were only seven blacks in the whole Allentown High School at the time. In my graduating class, there were 753 students, so it was a very large high school. There were only three blacks. The other two were from middle-class families, and he said, you are not only smart, but you have the greatest need, uh, so I'm going to recommend you. And he did. So for my Oh, by the way, when I got ready to apply for college, I took these exams because I had no idea what I wanted to major in. And the exams came back with a certain profile, almost like uh, my grandson's, you know, very good in math. That is right, isn't it? Um, very good in science, you know, problem solving and all that kind of thing and so the counselor guidance counselor said I think engineering would be a good thing for you to major in so I said okay and she said you know you seem to like 
doing electronic kits and that kind of thing. So maybe electrical engineering might be a good area. So I said, okay. Uh, then I applied for, I only knew of one college, seriously, and that was Howard University because of what my 10th grade English teacher had told me. And she said, you must go to Howard. So I applied to only one school, Howard, and fortunately uh, got accepted. So every year that I was at Howard, tuition, by the way, was $104 per semester. <laughs> you, you, you never had the chance to thank that philanthropist, the woman who was kind enough to pay for your education. And yet, throughout the book, you talk about Lady B, and in your own way, you have responded. How would you describe your response to Lady B? Well, she did not send a check to me, but every year she sent a check to Howard University enough to pay for my tuition, room and board, and books. So I had a full ride without my mother, who didn't have any money anyway, coming out of pocket. So it made an impression uh, so deeply that I said, one day, if I ever have the resources... I would like to help, especially some African-American children who are less fortunate, uh, to pursue their education. Mm -hmm. So it was just something that was there uh, from a long time. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we've had the resources uh, to do that. To help a lot of people. Give Eddie and Sylvia Brown a hand for paying it forward. For paying it forward in so many ways. I'm going to get to questions. There's so many more questions, but I want to give the audience a chance to ask questions. My final question has two parts. The first part involves the fact, and this is going to surprise you, that the first time I believe you may have gone down to Sylvia's house and you were asking her, you wanted to give her your pen, you wanted to get a commitment from her towards perhaps a permanent relationship. seems to me she said, I can't do that. It seems to me that she... That, that the first time in the book she did not accept you were, it seems to me that you were, I believe, turned down. Why don't you tell them about how Sylvia turned down Eddie Brown, Eddie Carl Brown, all right? I didn't tell him I was going to ask this question. Let's see how he answers this. This is a zinger for you. <laughs> you know, I don't this remember. is a lesson for all the men in the room. When you go to ask them out of the marry and they say no, just this is what you have to do. Listen to Eddie Carl, all right? <laughs> You know, I don't remember that at all. Oh. <laughs> Did Sylvia tell you that? <laughs> it's a made-up tale. <laughs> but no, I would go down many holidays to visit with Sylvia and her family, and it was just such a great family. Um... And I was an Omega. So I think what you're referring to, it wasn't really an engagement uh, ring, pen, but it was my fraternity pin uh -huh. Uh -huh. that I wanted to offer to her just as an indication. Yes, yes. She was a Delta. So, you know, if uh, people in the audience know Qs and Deltas, Omegas and Deltas are kind of sister-brother type relationship. But I wanted this to be more than a sister-brother relationship. <laughs> and she didn't accept my pen. 
<laughs> but when it came to the ring, <laughs> a few and, years later. And the rest is history, as they say. And the rest is history. I could ask questions in some of the audience about your Wall Street Week experience and many others, but I want to ask one more very sensitive and very important question, and then I'll open it up to the audience. Uh, perhaps one of the most dramatic and traumatic experiences of your life and your marriage was when Sylvia found a lump and you went through the experience of cancer with her. Tell us about that experience and what you learned about your life, your priorities, your values, and your future. Yeah, there were, I would say, three big painful experiences that took the wind out of my sail. We talked about one, that was my grandmother's death. And jumping forward to 2003, when I lost my mother, and the third one happened the year I started my business, 1983. In fact, the same summer, I left T. Rowe Price early July, July 1st, I think it was, to start Brown Capital. And shortly thereafter, Sylvia discovered a lump in her breast. And we went and we went and got two different opinions. And they said, uh, yes, it's malignant. And... You know, it was like my world had come to an end. I'd given up my job and just starting a brand new business. And I remember it as if it was yesterday because I called her brother. She has two brothers. They're both in the room. I called Charles Thurston, who is a dermatologist, and actually cried and asked for his help and guidance in what to do. And he consoled me, and we um, made a decision, and we got through it. But it was a very challenging and difficult time. And I guess what that experience brought home is that life is unpredictable, and you don't know when the master will call you home. And I've always lived or thought I'd lived a fairly balanced life. But what that said to me is let's make sure we keep the priorities straight. You know, faith, family, and career or work, kind of in that order. And I've maintained a balance. You know, I enjoy life. I do go on vacations. I work hard, but I also prioritize to keep that balance. So it um, kind of it was a wake-up call, and it basically uh, changed the way I live my life, live our life. Let's, let's first of all give Eddie Call a hand for living a good life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Very nice. I'm going to open it up now to the audience to ask any question. It's that time. we Carla, we went past when I would have been asking questions, but he had so many great answers, I couldn't stop. So let's get some questions from the audience. Who wants to go first? Hello, hello. Um, first of all, I, I really appreciate you um, as a person. Um, I was put on to your, everything that you've done through uh, uh, David Miller from the Urban Leadership Institute, um, and that was two weeks ago, so I, I just feel like it's a blessing to be here. Um, a personal question that I want to ask, right now I'm in the uh, 
in the beginning stages of starting a nonprofit. And I just want to get your opinion on what are, what are some of the most important things to keep in mind when you're looking for outside funding uh, as well as donations as far as presenting it to the public? Well, actually, to my left is one of the greatest fundraisers <laughs> in America. So I'll give you a short answer, but I want Freeman to answer that because I was at a party with Freeman and he worked that room and by the end of the evening, it was just a couple of hours, he's ra he had raised $3 million for UMBC. And a million came from us. <laughs> But I think the short answer, and Freeman, you can comment on this, is, um, you know, the cause and the organization, um, your board is very important to have quality people on the board, uh, develop a budget that's uh, reasonable, and ideally the people that you choose for the board should make a significant financial commitment because that's where it starts. Anytime you go out asking for money, the first question is, what about your board? Uh, what have they done and what are they doing? So I think structuring the purpose of the organization, the mission that's hopefully appealing to potential donors and creating a good uh, board and a good uh, plan Freeman? Yeah, just, just one comment. People give to people. People have to trust the person who will be running an organization. They need to know that person. So to young people, I always say, make sure you've had something that Eddie said before, good experience yourself, that people can believe that you have the competence and the experience and the judgment to lead the organization. Number two, people need to see your integrity. What comes through in Eddie's book is integrity all along the way at every step. He's thinking about what does it mean to do the right thing and figuring that out. And number three, you have to get to know people and understand, quite frankly, as he said, what interests they have. And, and people who have time and wisdom and money. And before starting an organization, organization, you have to know you have enough people or some way of funding it to keep it going. The worst thing you can do is raise enough money to get it going without having any idea about how you're going to keep it going. Sometimes what it means is taking your expertise, using it with an existing organization as you develop your expertise, as you develop your experience, your reputation, and most important, as you develop the contacts that can lead eventually to having the funds you need. Okay? Other questions? By the way, this audience is such a statement about the Browns. Would you give them a hand again, please? It just really is. It really is. It's an amazing statement. And, and it's a statement, I must say, about the Browns and their involvement with Baltimoreans and beyond of all races, all generations. It, it says so much about what happens when people live their lives with authenticity. And so it, it is a pleasure for all of us to be here with the two of you tonight. In the back. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing your story and for sharing with us some of the personal experiences which took the wind out of your sails. Uh, can you share with us some experiences in which you had professional setbacks and how you learned resilience? Okay, I think 
from a professional standpoint, uh, the greatest setback was really with uh, Brown Capital Management. And it was in 2005, we had amassed more than $6 billion of total assets under management. We underperformed the market significantly in 2004. And between 2004 and 2007, uh, we lost billions of dollars of assets. What we didn't realize was that clients edged on by consultants actually had shortened their time horizon. We still had great results for 10 years, but when you look at one, which is 2004, and you look at three, we were significantly under the benchmarks that we were being compared against. And we would say to the consultants, well, the three is impacted by the poor one, so naturally the three is going to be bad in the one, but look longer term. Well, that was not happening. So I think that was the largest business setback. And then, of course, uh, 2008 came along, uh, which in itself took a whack out of the assets. But fortunately, we learned, what did we learn from the experience? What we learned, and I think I mentioned this in the book, is that stick with your disciplines. We began to play to try to catch up by looking to try to do well over the next quarter, over the next year, because we were trying to get from under the gun. And we got off of our fundamental strengths, which is basically doing great research on companies, making great investment, longer-term investment decisions, as opposed to try to see what's going to do well over the next quarter, over the next year. And once we return to our roots and our disciplines and said, you know, if we lose a client, fine. Uh, We're going to do what we are good at. And we um, turned around the performance, um, and we began to rebound and climbing back up. In fact, um, our small company fund is ranked in the top echelon for one, three, five, ten, fifteen years. It's one of the five picks by Morningstar for their select fund list. They only choose, out of thousands of mutual funds, they only choose maybe five. And we, our small company fund is one. Our mid-cap fund that's open to the public um, has a five-star rating by Morningstar. So returning to our discipline, sticking to our guns, has basically put us back in the spotlight in a very positive way. So we learn a lot from adversity. Give them a hand for resilience. Up here. Up here. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Here and then here. All right. Go ahead. First and then first. Uh-huh. To your future. That, that you can take that any way you want to. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to live a long time. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what's intended by the question, but 
I have no plans of retiring anytime soon. Uh, we are doing great as a firm. We have a succession plan in place. Uh, we have a management uh, committee structure that's been operating for about four or five years. And so if something did happen to me, the firm will continue. I have a plan in place to transition ownership. Uh, in fact, this year, I will cut my ownership. It used to be 100% uh, through, 2000, uh, through 1999. I didn't see anything wrong with that. Uh, but I'll tell you, consultants and our major clients, you know, we have a couple of clients over uh, 500, $600 million, big, big, major clients, and they see a lot wrong with that. You know, what, what are you planning to do? Are you going to sell it? I said, no. We have the second oldest African-American-owned investment firm in the country. I want to keep our place in history. We're going to be internally owned. Well, how are you going to do that? So we had to do some great planning, and we have that, those plans in place. Uh, by the beginning of 2012, my uh, ownership will drop to 50% and you know, continue transitioning ownership to the team of the future. I remember T. Rowe Price, the man, said, you know, you have to do several things with the service business, like an investment business, because the most important assets leave, walk out the door every night, the people. So you have to compensate them well, treat them well as individuals, give them a great work environment, and offer them part ownership. So we've done all of those things. Uh, so future in terms of business is well-planned and in shape. Uh, we still have a number of things we want to do philanthropically uh, that we are looking at. Let me give you one example. Can I come? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have a program called Turning the Corner Achievement Program, and it's at the Crossroads School at Living Classrooms Foundation. My family, our family, has been supporting it for uh, almost eight years now. And we said to the folks at Living Classrooms and Crossroads, you know, we've spent over $5 million on this program. It's producing tremendous results. We certainly don't want to just leave it. We had agreed to do a million a year for five years, and that was it. It's producing such great results in terms of changing lives of children. And we're doing the whole school, basically about 50 in each class, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, 150 students, and we're doing the whole school. It's a terrific program, achieving great results. But we said you have to go out and raise, the gentleman asked about raising money. from our, So we have been helping. And let me just mention one case in point. We made a call and I got permission to use this publicly, on Mr. Peter Angelos. The head of development had said, you know, I've been calling on, uh, trying to get a meeting with Peter for 21 years since I've been at the Living Classrooms Foundation, have not been able to get a meeting. Well, fortunately, I got a meeting, and it was a lot of debate. How much should we ask him for? So we decided to ask Peter for and I was calling him Mr. Angelos. He said, call me Peter. So I said, that's a great start. So we asked him for $500,000. Um, it was the shortest and the easiest fundraising call I've ever made. We said 100000 a year for five years, $500,000 total. He said, okay. 
And that was it. I need to go with you to see Mr. Angelo. That's excellent. How many, Carla, how many more questions can we take? Two more Two. questions. There's one here and one. I'm, 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 let me just get one more in that area, somewhere over here, okay? Oh, back, back there, okay? The, over there first and then, then Joe. Uh -huh. Okay. How you doing? Uh, Hi. First of all, thank you for being here. Uh, my name is uh, Lance Lucas, and I, I run a not-for-profit. We do technology training for underprivileged communities. And my mentor, uh, Raymond V. Haysburg, who just passed, you mentioned pork sausage earlier, um, always used to say he doesn't invest in things, that he invests in people. So I, I always find it interesting to find out why people give. I, I love philanthropy, philanthropy and, and, and our giving and our not-for-profit, but I want to know why, why do you give so much? Well, I think it's because we care. I remember Congressman Cummins when he came, when the Brown Center at MICA was dedicated in 2003, and at the dedication he said, a lot of people care, but most people don't share. And I thought that was a profound statement. So we made a decision in 1996 that we were going to start a family foundation. And we focus it on th three areas that we care a lot about, and that's education, especially uh, African-American youth. Uh, the arts, and one reason is we have a daughter who is an artist, and she has enlightened us on how important the arts are. And the third area is uh, health care. So we care about a lot of things, but we don't have unlimited resources. So we decided to focus on three areas. And the health care one is an interesting one because we have now eight, and in August there will be 11 Brown Scholars in Community Health at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, yeah. uh, which I discovered a number of years ago, I did not know before we started this program, is the number one school of public health in the world. And these are the best and the brightest. It's a very competitive uh, fellowship because it's a full ride. I got a full ride at Howard, so I said, let's offer a full ride. So five years, PhD, everything paid for, and they get a research stipend each summer of 15000 a year to do research. Now, the focus is on impoverished communities to improve health seek to improve health outcomes in poor neighborhoods. This program has been, like the TCAP program, has been so successful, this, we now have uh, four years into this. It's a five-year PhD program. So the first cohort of three Brown Scholars in Community Health just finishing their fourth year. What they're committed to is working in poor urban areas to improve health outcomes. It's been so successful that they came to us last year because this is 
the last year of our funding. We committed for five years. And they said, this has been so successful, we would like to make a proposal. They're almost as good as Freeman in fundraising. They said, we would like for you and Sylvia, your foundation, to commit for another seven years. We would like for you to release the constraint of focusing on poor areas in Baltimore to, to improve health outcomes of poor people. We would like for you to make it national, other urban areas in the country. You're in the investment business. Here's a proposal. You commit for seven years, we will leverage your dollars four to one. They were matching one to one up until this point. By the end of those folks coming out, you will have 18 to 20 Brown Scholars in Community Health spread out across the country focusing on that area.